Thanks for tuning in to Three Strands Podcast. You're about to hear an episode from our Sunday morning worship service. To learn more about Three Strands, visit our website, threestrands.church. We're in the middle of a series called Beginnings, and we're studying through the creation account in Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3, how everything got here, um, what it was like at the beginning, and uh, kind of how maybe we messed it up a little bit and, and um, how God has planned to get it back to how it was at the beginning. So hope you'll be with us the next couple weeks. We'll be finishing the series up in two weeks. And it's really like one five-week sermon, kind of broken up into five weeks. So I hope you'll kind of be here for each part of it. If you missed something in the series, I hope you'll go back and listen on the podcast. Is it easy to find on the podcast, Abby? Abby listens to the podcast. I know that when she's not here. So she'll always text me and ask me stuff about it. So, but uh, if you've missed a piece, I wish you'll, I hope you'll go back and check it out to kind of catch up to where we're at. But just by way of review, back in week one, we kind of went through about five and a half days worth of creation and uh, all the things that God created. And um, I shared with you guys three important things. If you're a follower of Jesus, if you're a Christian, if you believe the Bible is true, there's three important things we kind of shared in that week that you want to grasp onto and embrace and believe wholeheartedly and not let anybody out in the world kind of rip those out of your heart or out of your mind. Um, and let's just go through those real quick. It was that God created things out of nothing. He's the only person that could do that, created out of nothing. Remember that? And um, I actually don't remember off the top of my head. You have to put it up. God created in the beginning. Yeah, that's important too. Uh, in fact, the very first line in the Bible is that God, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So and then that God creates through his words. He's so powerful that he's able just to speak the words and then things come to being. And so uh, that God's the only one that can do that too. And so these are unique things about God and the creation account that like the world's often trying to rip out of our hearts or t- kind of convince us to tear out of our Bible. And so uh, we want to hold on to those things um, with conviction that they, that they are um, kind of unique things that God put in the scriptures for us. And then if you were here last week, we dove into the last half a day of God's creation where I said he created us. And so that was all about God creating something extra special, and that's you guys. And so hopefully if you were here last week, you went away thinking like you matter to God. Um, you're not just an animal. You're not just a plant. Uh, and uh, you, um, you matter on a special level to the Lord. He's given you some um, unique things that he hasn't given the rest of creation. I shared those with you last week. You've been given a God-given appearance. You've have you have a God-given purpose and you have a God-given character were the things we shared last week and we looked at the text to kind of see where God talks about those things that he has made us very good, that he has um, uh, made us with a purpose or, or jobs or mission in this world. We're gonna dive into that a little more today um, and that he made us in his image. So he's given us like a, a, his appearance to kind of reflect to the rest of the world. So, And then in the first two weeks, I've kind of shared a couple important ideas that keep, are going to keep coming up every week, and, and they're important for us to kind of be on the same page about. And so I'm just going to give you those again, too. The, the first one was that God is beautiful and good and true, and that everything God does is good and beautiful and true, and that's who he is. But at the same time, that's everything the world's trying to rip apart about him. That anything that God says is good or beautiful and true, the world is trying to convince you is ugly, is, is bad and is untrue, is false, right? And so um, we're looking at some of those things each week. And so and then the second thing I shared both weeks that's kind of coming up every week is the importance of your worldview, that everybody has access to the same evidence, the same science, um, but the Christian 
looks at all the evidence with a different worldview, with a faith in a creator, with the faith in their maker. And the atheist, on the other hand, looks at the evidence with their worldview, which is that they come into the presupposition there is no God, there is no creator. And no matter how hard somebody would try, their worldview colors every single thing they look at. And, and uh, somebody that says, like, my worldview doesn't affect my objectivity is really just kind of fooling themselves. Everybody's worldview um, colors or flavors their, their um, view or their approach to any evidence or any data or anything they do or see or watch. And so we want to be honest about that and say, like, I'm coming into the, um, the study with a worldview that says, I believe there's a God. I believe that Jesus is his son, and I believe he deserves to be my Lord because he rose from the dead. And that worldview taints everything I look at. And so when I look at the words that came from Jesus, then I believe those no matter what no matter what somebody else tells me. And so any evidence or anything I look at is colored by that worldview. And there's other people out there that say, I know there's not a God. There can't be a God. This world kind of proves there isn't a God. And so anything they look at or any evidence they see, they're gonna be influenced or colored by that evidence as well. And then the last thing I've been sharing with you guys each week is that I hope in this series, you will see the glory of God that we're trying to put it on display each week. I'm trying to read you things that have been said about him. I'm trying to show you pieces of evidence or pieces of proof um, that display his glory. I'm trying to get us to stop and think about how great and powerful he is because um, he wants you to see that. In fact, that's really God's purpose in creation. He didn't create you because he was lonely or he needed a friend. God was completely content by himself, but he created everything to put on display his greatness, his glory. And so he's still doing that today, putting it on display for anyone with eyes to see. You can look around and see God's greatness on display in many ways. And so whether we're looking at the, um, uh, through a microscope at the cellular level or we're looking 31 million light years from earth, you can see God's glory in all the things he's created. And I hope you'll kind of get a glimpse of that again even today. And so I want to just read you a passage from Psalm chapter 8. Psalm chapter 8, I'm going to start in verse 1. The words will be on the screen if you want to follow along. O Lord, our Lord, your majestic name fills the earth. Your glory is higher than the heavens. When I look at the night sky, what are, when I look at the night sky and see the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars you set in place, what are mere mortals that you should think about them, human beings that you should care for them? Yet you made them only a little lower than the heavenly hosts and crowned them with glory and honor. You gave them charge of everything you made, putting all things under their authority, the flocks and the herds and all the wild animals, the birds in the sky, the fish in the sea, and everything that swims in the ocean currents. O Lord, our Lord, your majestic name fills the earth. Can you see it? If you're a Christian... If you believe Jesus is the Lord, if you believe the Bible is true and good and beautiful, when we read things like that, you can see it in your mind's eye. You can see that God has littered the pages of his word with more description of how great he is, how powerful he is, how he cares for us and has created us extra special and given us a job and a purpose and a mission while we're here on this planet. You can see it all as you read those pages together. And I'm trying to just share a little bit of that with you each week. And so here we are in the story. We've, we've wrapped up the creation account, really, that God has created all the stars and the moon and the sun and the um, you know, animals and the plants and people. And he's created all of it. And he 
kind of falls back and he rests for a day, not because he's exhausted. God doesn't get exhausted, but he falls back and he rests for a day. Really, you find out later on in the Bible as a role model to us that we do get exhausted, and so we need some rest in our life. And so God falls back and he rests for a day, and that seems like it's the end of the creation account, but not so fast. There's still a lot more content that God's going to give us on what it was like back at the beginning. And I want you to see that today. I want you to get a glimpse of what it was back then, because none of us were there. None of us lived in Eden, and none of us were there when God created Adam and Eve, and none of us know what it was like to live in a perfect world, and uh, a world that God called very good. So I want you to see that today. I want you to get a little bit of a glimpse into what it was like to live back at that time, if I can. And so we're going to go through it together, because if we don't, if we don't understand what God's plan was like at the beginning, then we might be tempted to think that what we see now is the plan, that what we see now is as good as it gets, and that God can't be trusted to tell the truth, and that God's plan is really kind of looks bad, and that God isn't really beautiful. I see a lot of ugliness in our world. So I want you to see the way it really was back at the beginning. So let me start with you in Genesis chapter 2. I'm going to start with the second half of verse 4, and just see if you can use your mind's eye to kind of picture what it was like back at the beginning, right after God finished creating everything he created. Genesis chapter 2, the second half of verse 4 says, When the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, neither wild plants nor grains were growing on the earth. For the Lord God had not yet sent rain to water the earth, and there were no people to cultivate the soil. Instead, mist came up from the ground and watered all the land. Okay, this is hard to see because we've all seen rain. But just imagine there's no rain. In fact, rain doesn't come on the scene in the Bible until Noah comes along a few thousand years later and there's a global flood and you'll see this rain is poured out then and then from then on you kind of have rain in the Bible. But up until that point, apparently there was no rain. There was just these underground springs or underground bodies of water that kind of misted up through the surface. I don't know if they were hot springs, cold springs or what, but in my head I kind of see some combination of like a really foggy morning uh, mixed with like the vegetable aisle at a grocery store. You know what I'm talking about? Where, like the mist comes out and kind of sprays everything. So if you can imagine kind of like some scene where all of the earth is kind of protected from um, uh, the, the layers and UV rays of the sun, and yet there's kind of this mist that kind of covers everything, keeping everything watered and nourished, even though it's not raining yet. And so that's kind of the scene you see here, right? And so um, I read through the rest of this passage this week, and what stuck out to me was there seems to be like some gifts that God gives humanity. And they just kind of like stuck out to me as I was reading through the passage. So I want to read through with you the rest of God's description of what it was like back then at the beginning. And I just want to point out to you the gifts that I saw that it seems like God gave to humanity. Now, some of them might not even seem like gifts to you. They didn't necessarily seem like great gifts to me at first, but let's look at them together and see what we can figure out. The first one I'll show you is a home, okay? A home, that God gave us a home. Now, I want to read it to you, and then we'll talk about it for just a little bit. Look with me at Genesis chapter 2. I'm going to pick it up, pick up the story in verse 8. It says, then the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he placed the man he had made. Now let me read you the description, a little bit of the description of this garden, okay? The Lord God made all sorts of trees grow up from the ground, trees that were beautiful. There's that idea again that God does things that are beautiful. 
trees that were beautiful and that produced delicious fruit. In the middle of the garden, he placed the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed from the land of Eden, watering the garden and then dividing into four branches. The first branch, called Pishon, flowed through the entire land of Hevelia, where where gold is found. The gold in that land is exceptionally pure. Uh, aromatic resin and oxen stones are also found there. The second branch, called the Gihon, flowed around the entire land of Cush. The third branch, called the Tigris, flowed east of the land of Asher. And the fourth branch is called the Euphrates. Okay, so can you see this kind of in your mind's eye? Just kind of keep envisioning it, right? You've got this very good creation. God says everything is very good. And there's no rain, but there's kind of like this mist or foggy kind of covering or mist that keeps everything watered and, and nourished. And then God makes a garden and says in the garden, he has all these different kind of trees grow up. Trees with fruit on them, trees that are beautiful, trees that are delicious. Um, and, and then there's a river that cuts down through the Garden of Eden and then it breaks into four different branches. And, and the problem with this picture for me as I was looking at this gift, and, and God takes Adam or takes the man and he puts him in the garden to live, he gives him a home, right? And the problem is I was looking at this this week is I thought to myself, like, why did God do that? I mean, if everything he made was perfect and he called it all very good, why did he have to make a special home for Adam? Why didn't he just put him down, turn him loose and say, hey, dude, it's all good. Go make what you want of it. And I don't really know the answer to that. The text doesn't say why he made this special garden place for Adam to live in, Adam and Eve eventually to live in. He doesn't really say why he did that. But I'll give you my best guess. Can I do that? This isn't in the Bible. Don't go out here and tell anybody I said this was in the Bible or I preached this today. I'm just giving you my best guess. I don't know that this is what really took place. But I almost feel like it was God's way of saying like, hey, you thought all that was good. Like, I'm going to do something even more amazing. I'm going to build you like a unique, special place. I know you could kind of make a place for yourself on your own, but I want to do something even better than you could even imagine, Adam. I want to create a space that is so special, so beautiful, so unique, and you can live in it, and it'll be like my gift to you. I don't know if that's really what's going on here, but it's almost like God is like, I can even do better. Like it was all perfect, and yet somehow I can still arrange it and grow things up and make it this like beautiful gift I'm going to present to my prized creation. And a couple of things about that garden I just want to point out. There's nothing in the text that would make you think it's this tiny little place. And I think sometimes like when you grow up in church like me and everything's like on flannel graph, if you don't know what flannel graph is, you probably didn't grow up in church. But it's like if you grow up in like an old school church and everything's like in flannel graph, it's like you see the picture of Eden and it's like Adam and Eve, you know, and then all these animals, there's like four animals in the picture. And then like the, but it has to fit on like the flannel graph board. So it's only like this big. And so like Adam and Eve could literally walk from like one side of the Garden of Eden picture to the other in like half a second. But it's probably not quite like that. It's probably much bigger than that. And so like the picture in my mind is like 
this little tiny place, but it's probably more vast than that. To have all these trees grow up in a trees of all these different kinds of fruit, probably a pretty big place. To have a river running down through the middle of it and to break off into four branches, probably a pretty large area that God makes or creates for Adam. The other thing that stood out to me is there's no mention anywhere, and this I do think, I do think is biblical. So you can tell everybody this if you want, but I don't see anywhere in the account where vegetables are mentioned because I think they were part of the fall. Like I think they're a curse. And so it's like this only fruit you see here. It's like, it's obvious. Anybody that's ever eaten vegetables, you know, it's like that can't be, that can't have existed in a land that was perfect because they're disgusting, you know? And so it's like, there's, it's just like fruit. And I'm like, oh, it's like my dream. I don't have to eat any vegetables at all. And so, but, um, and so like there's this beautiful garden that God creates almost like he's saying to his creation, it's like, I've made this special place for you. I want you to enjoy it. He's going to go on to tell him that, like, go ahead and enjoy all of it except one piece. Go ahead and enjoy it. And so the second thing or the second gift I see God give humanity in this passage is a job. Now, let me read it to you. He gives him a job. I'm going to start in verse 15. It says, the Lord God placed the man in the Garden of Eden to tend it and watch over it. And the Lord God formed all the wild animals and all the birds of the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And the man chose a name for each one. He gave names to all the livestock, all the birds of the sky, and all the wild animals. Now the text doesn't say, I don't know if he was like robin, blue jay, sparrow, or if he was just like bird, cow. I don't know. Who knows, you know? But it's like he gives them all names, right? And so here he is in the garden, and God gives him a purpose to watch over everything he's created, to tend the garden, and to name all the animals some, some purpose in life, a job to do. And that's important for us to see because I think so often for so many of us, like we go to work and we dread it. But I need you to know like jobs existed before sin, so they can't be bad. And they can't be the, the curse of sin, so they can't be punishment on your life. And we're going to dig into that a lot more um, in the next two weeks, too. But I just wanted to touch on it today, like this idea that like a job came before there was any imperfection in the world. So there's something about a job that's a gift. There's something about it that's supposed to be a good thing for us. And so here he is tending the garden and and naming all the animals and 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 like kind of fulfilling the purpose God's given and working. Right. And so just stop with me for a second. Just think about those first two, just for a second. That God intentionally gave humanity a home and that God intentionally gave humanity a job. Now let me ask you, how many of life's problems revolve around a home that's not quite right or a job that you just can't stand? Think about that for a second. Because all of those problems, none of them exist at this point. Because the home is awesome and peaceful. It's happy and whole. The job is fulfilling and meaningful, and there is no dread to it. Think about that for a second. I mean, I think about my own life, and I'm thinking like, man, as I've looked back on my whole life, if the home was always peaceful, and there were never any troubles in your family, and your job was always purpose-filled and meaningful, I could put up with a lot of other stuff, if those things are right. I mean, if your family is right, if your house is right, and your job is right, you can deal with a lot of hardship in life, and it'd be okay. And we're not even at the end yet, but I just kind of looked at those two, and I thought, like, man, God gifted to humanity 
peaceful home, a beautiful home, special just for them. And he gifted to humanity purpose and meaning in a job. Of course, we have trouble seeing a lot of that now, but just think about that for a second. There's a third gift gift that God gives to humanity uh, in this text, and it's a warning. Now, a warning doesn't sound like a gift. I get that. Let me read it to you first, and then we'll come back to it. After I read it, it may sound even less like a gift. I don't know. But let me read it. It's in verse 16. But the Lord God warned him, you may freely eat the fruit of every tree in the garden except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat its fruit, you will surely die. Doesn't sound like a gift to me. It sounds like a rule. That's what it sounds like. And rules rarely sound like a gift. Right? I think if you ask any kid, are you thankful for all the rules, probably going to get a no response, right? <clears throat> but here's the one time when a rule is a gift. You ready? When breaking the rule would cost you your life. Whether you recognize it or not, it is actually a gift. And so if I'm telling my kids, like, here's the rule, you're not allowed to run on the street. Like, you're not allowed to run down 27. That sounds like a rule. It sounds like I'm, down, like I'm kind of being a downer on their life and, and kind of stealing all their joy. But, but if they disobeyed that rule, they'd be dead. So it is actually a gift. It may just not sound like it, but this is actually a gift from God. He's saying, if you disobey, you will die. If you obey, you will live. It's, it is the only rule, the only warning he gives. And I think back so often to like passage I memorized back in college, Psalm chapter one, that says, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, is in the rules of the Lord. And in his word does he meditate day and night. It says he'll be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth fruit in its season. His leaves won't wither and everything he does will prosper. It's God's only rule, really, for humanity. Just do whatever I tell you. Just obey me and don't disobey. If you disobey, you'll die. If you obey me, you'll find life. And it's really a gift because he wants them to live. And you have these three gifts and these three gifts are beautiful, and they're good, and they're true, but it's hard to see them that way. He gives them a home that the Bible literally uses the word beautiful to describe, that God calls all these trees to come up, and they were beautiful, and so he gives them this beautiful home to live in, and yet for so many of us today, like, the home is ugly. Maybe we didn't even want it that way, but our home is ugly. And it's hard to even see this picture of a beautiful home in our mind's eye because it's been such a disaster for so long. I get it. And then he gives them a job and it's supposed to be like meaningful and and hear the pastors up front telling you like, see it in your mind's eye as this thing of purpose and this great kind of gift from the Lord. And yet for maybe decades, you've dreaded work. And it's hard for you to think of work as this good thing. You think of it as a bad thing. And then God issues this warning. It's really the same warning he's given us today. And you, 
you've messed up so many times and you've disobeyed him so many times that it's hard for you to even see that warning as a good thing. Now you, you look at it as like just a reminder of how much you've fallen short. And if you don't see it that way, maybe you struggle to even see it as true. It's like, well, I've messed up so many things and I've disobeyed God in so many ways, yet here I am, still kicking. I don't necessarily even believe that's true and without even realizing it. The very home that God wants us to see as beautiful, we see as ugly. Without even realizing it, the very job that God wants us to find purpose at, we see as bad. And without even realizing it, we see the very warning he's given us to protect our life as something false. See, we weren't there thousands of years ago. It's hard for me in my mind's eye to picture all those things. But there was one more gift he gave humanity in the passage. I'm going to show it to you. Let me read you the verses first. Uh, It may not look like a gift, but it's another one of those, kind of even if it doesn't look like it, it is. But let me read it to you in verse 22. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib of the man. I read that last week. And he brought her to the man. Verse 25 says, Now the man and, the wife and his wife were both naked, but they felt no shame. And sometimes the very best gift somebody can give you is something they don't give you. And what God didn't give any of his creation was shame. And in this scene, this is almost impossible for us to feel or to put into our mind's eye, because we just weren't there back then. But he gives them this home, and he gives them this purpose or this job, and he gives them this warning, warning and then it's like he kind of wraps this whole thing up by saying, like, and there is no shame in this place. And that's hard, because I feel a lot of shame. I think back about all the things I've done to make my home not a beautiful place. And I think back about all the ways I've not taken advantage of the opportunity to maximize my job for the glory of God. And I think back on all the warnings from him I've disobeyed over my life. And what I'm left with is a lot of shame about how messed up I am. But not in Eden. Back there, there was no shame. They didn't even know what shame was. They were just free. And he gives them that fourth gift of freedom from shame. It isn't something he gives them. It's actually something he doesn't give them. And it's beautiful. And it's good. And it's true. And it's hard for me to even see that. And I look at my life and how messed up it is and how many mistakes I make along the way. And a lot of times I find myself kind of getting to a spot where I just think to myself, how did I get here? Like, how did I mess it up so bad? How did I wreck my family that badly? How did I get to this dead-end job that I hate going to? How have I disobeyed the God I say I believe in so many times? I get to that place, and what I feel on the inside is shame. And I think I'll never be in this place that we're talking about today. It's Eden, this garden that God made for humanity. It's like it's in the past, and it's over, and I'll never be there. But God wants every single one of us to experience that same environment in the future. He talked about it over and over again in his word. This is God's plan to to bring all things back to this state where it's all good and beautiful and true. I don't have time to go through the whole Bible and read you every passage that talks about when God is going to create a new heaven and a new earth. But if you read those descriptions, it sounds a lot like what we just described. Even better, really, than what we just described. 
that God wants to bring us to that spot and have us experience what it feels like to have this special home just for us and to have purpose and meaning no matter what we're doing and to always obey him and just live with no shame. Maybe you've been in church before and you've heard them use words like redemption or restoration. That's literally what these words mean. Redemption just means to buy something back that was taken. And restoration just means to bring something back to what it was before. That might have been my pacemaker. And uh, I don't have a pacemaker. I'm just messing with you. But He's so young for a pacemaker. But uh, that's literally what those words mean. That's what the whole Bible is revolving around. How can God get his creation back to the way it used to be? How can God redeem back or buy back his creation? How can he restore back or how can he put them back to the way it was at the beginning? This is God's goal. Let me just read you a few of them. 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 10 to 13. But the day of the Lord will come as unexpectedly as a thief. Then the heavens will pass away with a terrible noise and the very elements themselves will disappear in fire and the earth and everything on it will be found to deserve judgment. Since everything around us is going to be destroyed like this, what holy and godly lives you should live. Looking forward to the day of God and hurrying it along. On that day, he will set the heavens on fire and the Elements will melt away in the flames, but we are looking forward to the new heavens and the new earth. He has promised a world filled with God's righteousness. You know what that is? That's a world filled with we take the warning and we obey it. That's what it's going to be like. Look at the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 65, verses 17 to 19. Look, I am creating new heavens and a new earth, and no one will even think about the old ones anymore. That's how great they'll be. Be glad, rejoice forevermore in my creation, and look, I will create Jerusalem as a place of happiness. Her people will be a source of joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and delight in my people, and the sound of weeping and crying will be heard in it no more. Wow, a happy home filled with peace and joy and no crying. Look at the very end of the Bible, chapter, Revelation chapter 21, starting in verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the old heaven and the old earth had disappeared, and the sea was also gone, and I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven like a bride beautifully dressed for her husband, I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. And the one sitting on the throne said, look, I am making everything new. Restoration, redemption, this is what we're talking about. This is what God wants. And it's all coming in the future. But, but, and I know that we're going to have to wait for some of that stuff. Like the no death and the nobody getting sick and the, the no wars and the no famines and all that that the Bible talks about in the new heaven and the new earth. We're going to have to wait for some of that. But here's the beautiful part for today for us. Some of that stuff God wants to give you right now. A new home, a new purpose, 
some warnings. They're for today, too. They're not just for the distant future. They're not just in the way back past. There's something God wants to give you today. Think about some of the things Jesus said as he was wrapping up his time on earth. Hey, I'm going away, but don't worry. I'm going away to prepare a home for you. And if I do that, you can be sure that I'm going to come back and get you sometime, that where I go, you can come also, a new home. So I don't have it yet. I get it. I still live in my home that collects dust and has all kinds of problems and we got a lot of brokenness and all that. But yeah, but the rest of the Bible talks about like we keep our eyes fixed on the things ahead of us. I keep my eyes set on the realities of heaven. I don't store up for myself treasures here on earth. No, I store up my treasures in heaven. I get all of my attention and all of my effort and all of my thoughts on the future of heaven. And that future reminds me that God's got this special place he's created just to say to me, it's yours. Come live here with me. And I can put up with a lot if I have that. He also told all of his followers, get out of here. Go and make disciples everywhere in the world you got a job to do. You're not just here to take up space. You're not just here to look nice. You're not just here to make a better life for yourself. You're here to go and make a difference. It's a job, and it's a job with a purpose, a calling that will leave you fulfilled. Later on in the New Testament, Paul would say, anyone who trusts in Jesus will never be ashamed. How about that? Jesus wants to take away my shame right now. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. It's a warning. If you want to hang on to your life, you've got to give it up. If you hang on to your life now, you're going to lose it. But if you heed the warning, obey my commandments and live, disobey my commandments and experience death and chaos and calamity, Can you imagine it, what it would be like? You don't have to wait for all of it. Jesus is offering you a happy home right now. He doesn't want your home to be chaos. He's offering you a fulfilling job right now. But you gotta change your mindset. Stop looking at your job as a moneymaker. Start looking at it as a place to win souls. He's offering you a life free of shame. I know we have to wait for some of that stuff. But most of the good stuff's are available right now. And for too long, I've made my home about me, about how I can be the most comfortable. But if I'll die to myself and serve those around me, my home will be a place of peace. For too long, I've looked at my job as just something I have to do or putting in my time until I get to retirement, or just a way to make money, to get to what I really enjoy on the weekends. But what if I started looking at my job as a place to go and make disciples? What if I looked at my job as the uttermost parts of the earth? What if I looked at my job as a place to go to all nations and tell people the gospel about Jesus? What I would find if I did that was purpose and meaning and fulfillment. I'd get up ready to go to work, excited to be there again. If you've ever experienced that at your job, if you've ever been at work and gotten into a spiritual conversation with anybody and you just talked with them about the Lord and at the end of the conversation, maybe they were like, 
I really need to come to church, or I really need to get my life right with Christ, or I really need to trust Jesus to save me. If you've ever had that happen to you, you go home that day like you're high. Like you go home that day ready to like wreck the world if you had to. Because it pumps you up and fills you on the inside because it's what God created you to do. But for too long, we've been selling our purpose short for some money or for some better hours or for just getting through till retirement. I was talking with somebody this week about this whole American idea of like retirement, which, you know, really until like the last 150 years didn't even exist, you know? And now we've got this whole like retirement thing going in our, our minds and it's like woven its way into the church and now Christians think they retire too. And it's like, I hit 60 or 65 and like I retire from Jesus. Now I just sit and watch other people serve him. Like what? I'm serving Jesus to the day I die. I want to be, we don't have time to get into this story. I want to be like Caleb who was like in his 80s and he was like, Joshua, I'll go defeat that nation. I'll take that land. That's my inheritance. I want it. I want to be fighting for Jesus to the day I die. I want to have purpose and meaning and fulfillment. I want to obey every one of God's commands so that I know what it feels like to be filled with him, so I know what it feels like to be in his um, good graces, so I know what it feels like to run my life close to him. And for too long, I've been selling it short and saying, it doesn't really matter what he says. I can do whatever I want as long as I go to church on Sunday, as long as I read my Bible once in a while, as long as I ask for forgiveness, I can just keep doing whatever I feel like doing. Hey, I know God says this, but you don't understand how I feel. And we've been trading in our destiny. We've been trading in Eden for a gut feeling, for some money, for the grass is greener on the other side. And it really comes down to these two words. I'll put them both on the screen for you. They're the two sides of one coin. I've talked to our church a lot about this, that becoming a Christian is really two sides of one coin. It is one thing, but it's both these things at the same time. So somehow it's heads and tails at the same time. There is no such thing as a Christian who has only experienced one of these two things. It doesn't exist in the Bible. There's no such thing. So I don't care what prayer you've prayed or what aisle you've walked down or what rules you've kept or how many times you've punched the clock at church. That isn't what makes you a Christian. These two things are what make you a Christian. And Christians are the ones that get to live with God forever. They're the ones that get restored to Eden. They're the ones that get to experience the new heaven and the new earth. And so there's this part of Christianity that is salvation, that I can't save myself, that I have to recognize how messed up I am and that I need somebody else to rescue me. Luckily, God sent somebody to do that for me, his son. And Jesus came and lived the perfect life I couldn't live and died in my place so that in exchange for death, I can be given eternal life. And the way I get that is not by being a good person or not by doing enough Hail Marys or not by punching enough good deeds in my life or not by being born into the right family or the right church or getting baptized. None of that stuff has anything to do with it. The way I get that is I simply say, Jesus, will you save me? I just call out to him and he says yes every time. But that's only half the coin. The other side of the coin is surrender. Because at the exact same moment, I say, will you save me? And I will give up everything I am for you. 
And whatever you tell me from now on, I'll do. Whatever you say to believe, I'll believe. And I don't care what a teacher tells me, what a parent tells me, what my gut is saying, what the rest of society is preaching at me, what cable news is telling me to believe or to love or to hate. I'm just going to do whatever you say to do. I'm just going to believe whatever you say. And you say, are you going to get it perfect? Absolutely not. That's why I need saved. You get it? They work together. I need saved because I can't do it, but I need to surrender because he's worthy of my surrender. And so I need both sides of the coin. I just come to God and I say, Jesus, save me, please. Trusting only in you to save me. And Jesus, I surrender to you because you alone are worthy. And why is he worthy? I've been hammering this into my kids for the past year. There's only one thing that makes Jesus worthy. You ready? He rose from the dead for you. That's it. If Jesus hasn't been risen from the dead, everything else about our faith is worthless. But because he rose from the dead, because he conquered death, because he defeated sin and hell and death, because he paid the price I couldn't pay, and he rose from the dead displaying the power I couldn't display, he is the only one worthy. He is the only God. And when I'm ready to stop being my own God, stop calling my own shots, think, stop thinking my own goodness can get me to eternal life, stop telling God I'm going to do what I feel like doing, when I'm ready for that and I say, please save me, and I'll surrender everything, in that second, in that moment, you get Eden. You get perfection. Yeah, we're still going to be sick. We're still going to have to see death. But all the gifts God gave to Adam and Eve... All the gifts he put in that garden, they're all here for you. A beautiful home, an amazing, fulfilling, meaningful purpose in life, an instruction book of things to do that will lead you to life and not death, and complete freedom from shame. They're all yours for the taking today. So I'm going to give you guys a minute. Will you close your eyes and bow your heads with me? We're going to dig into more of this account in the next two weeks. But just now, before we close in a song, before we close in a song, before we cry out to God about his goodness and his greatness and his glory, before we respond back to him about all the truth that he's given us through his word today, I wanna just give you 30 seconds to decide, is now gonna be the moment that you get perfection? Is now gonna be the moment that you get eternal life, a special, beautiful home, freedom from shame, no punishment down the road in your future, is now gonna be the moment, because all it takes is for you to say to Jesus, please save me, I'll surrender. Those aren't magic words, there's no magic words in the Bible, but that's what it looks like. A heart that needs salvation and a heart that is willing to surrender. Is that you? If it's you, you can talk inside your own mind to the God of the universe right now, and you, in this moment, can experience brand new life. It comes with all the same gifts that God promised Adam and Eve, that God promised for the future. He's promising them all right now to you in this moment. Will you tell God for the first time in your life, I need you to save me and I will surrender to you. I'm challenging you that with that right now. Don't just be a hearer of the word, be a doer of the word. Can I pray for you before we do that? Dear God, give the people in this room courage to cross from death to life, 
to go from temporal to eternal, to cross over from a meaningless existence to a purpose-filled existence, to cross over from a broken home to a beautiful home, to cross over from all the guilt and shame to freedom and deliverance and redemption and restoration. In Jesus' name, they can do that if they will cry out to you. Will you bless them right now with the courage it'll take? Because it takes courage. I got to walk away from everything I am and trust everything you are instead. And that is a hard ask. That is a hard ask, God. And so would you just bless them with the courage it's going to take to give up control their whole life to you so that they can cross over from death to life and be part of your family. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thanks again for listening in on the Three Strands podcast. If you've never visited us in person, we'd love to meet you face to face. We gather every Sunday at 11 a.m. at the McCreary County Park building. We hope to see you soon.